From BYU Broadcasting's Performance Studio, this is Highway 89. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Tonight, Piano's Greatest Hits with Robin Hancock. So how on earth do you pick the greatest pieces ever written for piano? How would you do it? Would any two people agree? Should we take a survey? We could do rock, paper, scissors. Do we have pianists arm wrestle? The fact is there is such a sizable body of wonderful, challenging, beloved, inspiring, difficult, and even dazzling piano music that we might call the standard works or the piano canon. So we're going to narrow it down to just enough music for our show, and there's only one way to do that. Let our pianist's personal preference pick the pieces from that perfect piano piece pool. Our performer today is Dr. Robin Hancock, a member of the American Piano Quartet, part of the BYU Music Faculty, and we'll start with his first place choice. This is going to be a work by Sergei Rachmaninoff. As a young man, he could not have known as a starving student that selling the copyright to this piece for next to nothing would help him out later in life. The piece had become so popular worldwide that when a much older Rachmaninoff fled Bolshevik Russia, it became his instant introduction to audiences around the world. I guess we can forgive him for learning to detest the piece. After all, he was asked to play it nearly every day of his life from then on. In fact, Sergei Rachmaninoff himself played this work as an encore right here in Provo, Utah, in a concert December of 1938. So our studio audience is ready. This is a group of some of our sustaining members of Classical 89. We're grateful to each of them for their ongoing support. Robin Hancock, our pianist, is ready. Having learned this piece all the way back in high school, which we are told greatly increased his popularity. And I am positive that you, wherever you may be listening from, are ready now for Prelude in C-sharp minor by Sergei Rachmaninoff.
A great beginning to our evening of Piano's Greatest Hits, performed by Dr. Robin Hancock. That's the prelude to C-sharp minor, performed in studio live tonight on Highway 89. Our studio audience bravely holding their wild applause to the very end. That's for timing purposes. They'll get their chance. We'll clap at the end. Dr. Robin Hancock holds degrees in piano performance and pedagogy from Central Washington University, Brigham Young University, and Boston University. Thank you, Robin Hancock, for being with us today. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be here. That Rachmaninoff prelude, it's very beautiful, but is it true that that upped your social standing in high school it, because you learned that? It is true. I became much more popular. Uh, I played for choirs and things, but when I, when I pulled that one out of the hat, everyone was very excited, and my parents said, see, playing the piano is really a great thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> Could put you ahead in life. Yes. So how hard was this? I mean, this is so much, it's so subjective. Personal preference, the greatest piano pieces of all time that people love. Was this easy, or did you just have to sweat over this? It, uh, picking the pieces is actually easy because they're the ones that have emerged over the centuries and the decades and they're the ones that everyone turns to and, and I'm talking about not just students wanting to play them but the general public and I mean the minute you say uh, you, you play the piano the next thing is can you play Claire de Lune for me or uh-huh. Claire de Lune in C sharp minor so that's the first thing that the, the public knows and that's why we came to call them the standard works, especially here in Utah, the piano capital of the world, which also understands the, the concept of standard works. And maybe you want to explain... <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you want to explain that piano capital of the world. It's a real thing. We say that because it's per capita. Mm-hmm. There are more teachers here per capita, more pianos in homes per capita, more students taking lessons per capita uh, than anywhere else in the world. So we, we, we do say that in all seriousness. So... And part of our prevailing culture around here for to, to get the children to, to uh, uh, go for greatness and, and good things and beauty. So. Well, you mentioned it was easy to choose some of these, but I think the hard part came in ranking them because you actually have a two-way tie for a number two. <laughs> yeah. And never fear, audience. It's a little bit arbitrary. but We're going to hear both of them, <laughs> okay. two, two different Beethoven pieces. So tell me about this very first one. In fact, everyone could probably guess if there was a sonata that people would say, let's hear this one. It's the Moonlight Sonata. Of number, course. Yes. Number 14. Yeah. Do you remember first learning this or first hearing it? Uh, first learning it again in high school and working on it. I played it on my senior rec- high school senior recital. Mm-hmm. Played the whole thing. We'll just, I'll just play the first movement for this because that's the one that the public is most aware of. And the fir- early listeners and critics uh, said it was like a boat in the moonlight. And that, that nickname stuck. Beethoven didn't give it that name, but it stuck. And he, and he even was a little exasperated at his popularity, saying, surely I've written better things. So... <laughs> Well, let's hear this piano sonata number 14, the Moonlight Sonata, and then after this, we'll give a quick introduction to the second place tie also from Beethoven.
the first movement of Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number 14, the Moonlight Sonata. I'm sure you can picture that boat gliding in the reflected moonlight on Lake Lucerne in Switzerland, which was as the critic described it. Tying for second place in our evening of Piano's Greatest Hits, another Beethoven piece. This is going to break the mold and not be in C-sharp minor or D-flat, like most of our other pieces are. I think uh, Robin Hancock may have a thing for black keys. I don't know. We're going to hear a piece that Beethoven thought of, uh, he called it a bagatelle, which means a short piece, almost like an improvised or throwaway piece. We're glad it never actually got thrown away because Furelis has been extremely popular ever since. Also with beginning students and children, lots of people know those opening few notes and repeat them over and over <laughs> and over, which means we don't always get to hear it played all the way through or the way we're about to hear it played, the way it was written by Beethoven. Here is Robin Hancock with Bagatelle number 25, Furlis. Bagatelle number 25 by Beethoven. Of course, we all know it as Beethoven's Furlis, played live here by Robin Hancock in our performance studio at BYU Broadcasting. That was one of two Beethoven pieces tied for second on this program of Piano's Greatest Hits on Classical 89 and BYU Radio's Highway 89. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Uh, Robin Hancock... Sometimes pianists shy away from playing those very, very popular pieces. Is it is do they become a cliche, or or why is that? Uh, in many ways, they do become a cliche, and and uh, also uh, considered the students play them. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're not great pieces. And as we're hearing, and, and as, as I'm, I'm, I'm constantly reminded the greatness of these composers, whether it's an extensive, involved piece, very virtuosic, or these beautiful little gems, 
they 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 show how great those composers were and and because they're a little bit more s- simple uh, somewhat the 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 simplicity s- disguises some of the difficulties in them um but we use them because they allow the students to learn things about pedaling and about voicing. Uh, and uh, then also they're very rewarding because uh, the students play them and they start to understand why we say that music is such an emotional art. And we, we teachers like to say we're in the business of saving souls. And we use these pieces uh, that, that seem to put the invisible pieces like the Greeks taught, the invisible pieces inside each of our souls into order. And I think that's why these pieces are, they speak to people that listen to the general public. Those that even haven't played the piano have an affinity for these pieces. Oh, what an interesting thing, yeah. oh, a way of describing that, to put the pieces in yeah. order, the invisible pieces. Yeah. I was going to ask you, you play works by so many great masters, and literally, not following in their footsteps, but following in their fingerprints almost, yeah. because you're putting your hands on the very notes that they did. Are there any composers that when you play them and have your hands in those same positions that you think this really feels like home to me i think i really relate to this particular composer just the way it's approached well there's some composers who if you looked at their hands for pictures of their hands they look very kind of smallish hands or ill-formed and you don't know how they're playing the piano and they and the music that they wrote sometimes is awkward for a typical student or a pianist to, to work on. And people in that line were people like Brahms and Stravinsky. And their music is considered virtuoso Everests in the, in the business, and they are so difficult to do. Other composers and the other line would be Chopin, Liszt, Rachmaninoff, who, who idiomatically knew how the piano feels and had the hands to show it. We've seen pictures of their hands. And they had long, slender hands and fingers that, that could reach. And, of course, Rachmaninoff had the span of a twelfth in his left hand uh, alone two notes and past the octave yeah yes well well five notes past the octave oh, to the 12th and anyway so um whatever composer i'm playing it's rewarding in many ways or in different ways depending on what it is what the piece is and who the composer is especially if you ask me my favorite i love playing chopin and list and rachmaninoff mm. <laughs> those are the three giants for me in the in the field that we Go back to over and over and over. Well, luckily we have some of those coming up, yes. not to reveal too much. But <laughs> <laughs> let me ask about uh, when did you know first that piano was really the instrument for you? And then when at some point did you think, I'm actually going to base my professional life on this? <laughs> I might have known it nine months before I was born because, <laughs> because my mother was a concert pianist and then she was my teacher until I... Uh, went away to college. So wow. for my entire childhood, she was my teacher. She's listening tonight from Seattle on the live stream. And uh, so she was uh, instrumental in that. And, of course, the, our home, the first piece of furniture in their home was a piano. So I was surrounded and immersed by it from very young. Uh, as I say, when I was born, they were bringing me home and there was music playing on the stereo. So, uh, and, then, and then I took started playing when I was five years old and, and continued on. And, and it, it, it just gradually emerged that this is my life. And maybe it's because the music was so ingrained in my soul mm-hmm. and, and in my fiber and whatever that, uh, that that was the way I was going to go. And, and uh, I didn't really think about anything else too much. I just, cause I got into music programs at high school and then continued to write on in college. So it's just always been like my chosen life. Well, I've heard of early exposure to music, but you sort of have put a, a new level on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Prenatal exposure to music. <laughs> I had a teacher tell me, uh, when, when, when should we expose children to music and start them? And, uh, and he said this, well, ma- nine months before the child is born. And then he said, maybe nine months before the mother is born. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it gets passed on. Yeah. Well, you talked about pedaling and other techniques, which leads us into this next piece, because Debussy sort of moved into a different realm. Introduce this piece in his style for us. Well, Debussy, we, teachers, we like to say that he invented the 20th century piano idiom in all of the special effects that he discovered and, and th- that we still teach. And one of them is this very special pedal technique, uh, which I would say half pedal, flutter pedal, Uh, Don't completely clear the pedal. It's what keeps the sonorities going on. And then you put what he did with the fantastic modern instruments that we have with all of their capabilities and their long sustaining power. Mm. And the the combination is dynamite. So and this piece we're going to do is, is again becomes a beloved favorite of the general public. 
So because but, of because of these overtones and sonorities and things. When, when we talked before uh, before this, you mentioned that there is one particular group you perform for that always demands this piece. Well, I'm all I'm frequently in the care centers and senior living centers around uh, the valley and elsewhere. And uh, I go in there and I say, I'm I'm grateful to be here to do a piano recital for you. Are you going to play Claire de Lune? And, and so and because that's what they love. The older generation really loves Claire de Lune. I play it everywhere I go. But the younger generation now has been reacquainted with it because it was rolling over the credits of those Oceans movies with George Clooney. Oh, so okay. it became popular again. And I, I, I think I read you called them the Claire de Lunis, who are all, who all over are, campus. I can hear it being played on the pianos all over campus, and I call it the Claire de Lunis of the play. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is our third place piece with uh, Dr. Robin Hancock, Pianos Greatest Hits from Claude Debussy, Claire de Lune.
you almost hate to say anything to break the mood. We're just floating away on Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune, Moonlight. That is one of the movements from his Sweet Bergamasque and is our third place piece on this evening's Piano's Greatest Hits performed live here in studio by Robin Hancock at BYU Broadcasting. Can you imagine a world with no pianos? Uh, I personally can't. Uh, the piano has become the sovereign instrument. We like to, again, say in the piano world that we're the only instrument that can with to, that can stand up to a 110-piece orchestra. <laughs> so. Well, everything is played on the piano, from honky-tonk and jazz to those floating chord clusters of Debussy that we just heard. And you mentioned about these the newer pianos, meaning that the piano has changed over time. You know, we have a longer sustain. Well, what do you think it would be like to go back and hear a concert on one of those early pianos? Would that be painful for someone who's played on the instruments you have today? For for me, it's a it's a little bit surprising. Uh, and then I've been around listening to archival recordings, and, and I've played on historical instruments. They do have a smaller sound, but that's what worked, and that's what inspired Beethoven to compose the way he did, even Chopin, uh, because they were they were playing on small, the smaller sounding instruments. They hmm. were a little bit smaller in scope, fewer octaves. They didn't have the cast iron frame. Uh, the pedal mechanism wasn't totally developed yet, so it was a lighter, shallower sound. Uh, I, I hear these pieces these, the, that uh, being played as a novelty on the historical instruments. They do sound quite a bit different, not quite as luscious, healthy sonority, but very interesting to hear that and to think, well, that's what Beethoven was hearing. You have, besides being a performer, been a teacher for many years. Yes, And I, I wanted to talk about what you see your students get from this. You talked about organizing those inner invisible pieces inside us. I mean, is that what it is, the main thing? Or, or is there something else that the piano students learn as, as they go through learning the repertoire? They, 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 they get that, uh, the, the fact that the music is the language of the soul, language of the spirit. Uh, but along the way, they also learn what they're made of because we make the students, especially our seniors, they have to do a senior recital, and that's a 60-minute experience, uh, as we say, without a net. In other words, they go <laughs> total memory for that uh, Kind of like recital. tonight. Like tonight, yes. <laughs> and uh, they see what they're made out of. And uh, if they can do that and withstand that kind of adrenaline and, and a, uh, even a bit of a stage fright experience, and I ask them, do you like this or do you dread it? And, you know, the ones that like it, I say, you may have a future mm. and enjoy doing this. If you dread it, uh, why put yourself through the torture? <laughs> uh, you can enjoy music in many, many ways throughout mm. life. So that's what we, I like our general public and our listeners to know that music is not just for those that play and perform. It's for everyone. You mentioned two composers that you feel an affinity for, feel very comfortable, uh, Chopin and Liszt, and we're going right. to hear. You had another tie. I don't know, is this yeah. a problem with indecision, or could you just not find a quarter? There, or <laughs> there, There's actually several that could come in at this fourth place, mm. and I picked these two. I won't say what the other alternatives were, because you'll get letters of, of complaints <laughs> saying, why didn't he play those pieces also? So. <laughs> We'll do that another night. Yeah. We'll bring you back. So tell me about uh, this piece by Chopin, his Nocturne in C-sharp minor, returning to that key again, his yes. number, number 20. It's the key of the evening because of its uh, soul-stirring harmonic overtones, C-sharp minor and D-flat major, the enharmonic equivalent. Uh, this piece that we're going to do, uh, should I say the title? Did, or you just yes. said it, Nocturne in C-sharp minor. This was... Uh, came to a prominence again in a 2002 movie called The Pianist, which had a lot of Nazi concentration camp type violence because it was about this pianist who survived and was hidden by his friends throughout that ordeal. Anyway, he was the house pianist for Radio Warsaw. Mm. And this piece, The Nocturne, was the piece he was playing when the bombs were falling and the network went off the air then for the duration of the war. And when it came back on and he had survived, he then went back to his job and played this piece when the network came back on the air after World War II was over with. Wow. So that's its recent prominence. Another favorite of the public. Very symbolic bookends here for this piece. It's interesting music because it is. it speaks to our emotions. We often do tie it to events like that. And maybe that's something to keep in mind as we hear this work by Chopin, Nocturne in C-sharp minor, number 20.
beautiful twist to the major right there at the end of Nocturne in C-sharp minor number 20 by Frederick Chopin. This next piece is by Franz Liszt. And about 19, or 1850, he wrote three Liebestraum, or Dreams of Love, originally started as songs based on poems. And this particular one, the third of the set, goes to the key of A-flat. For Liszt, he said that was the key of longing and love. Here is Robin Hancock performing Liebestraum by Franz Liszt.
Liebestraum, performed live by Robin Hancock, music by Franz Liszt. And you, some of that it was so relaxing to me. And then I saw how hard you were working at keeping the middle <laughs> range going with your right hand, playing the bass notes, and then the left hand crossing over to play the high melody. It's, it's not really a relaxing thing necessarily for the pianist, but it, it sure, certainly has that effect on us. It's, it's the duck on the pond. Uh, looking placid and serene, but mad underneath, the, 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 the legs are paddling madly. <laughs> it's true. Today we are gathered here with Classical 89 sustaining members for an evening of Piano's Greatest Hits, performed by Dr. Robin Hancock here in our BYU uh, Broadcasting Performance Studio. We've heard, Dr. Hancock, your first ties for second, also your third, now ties for fourth places for piano. We did give you sort of a wild card here, and you chose uh, to pick a couple of local favorites. Uh, we were going to just be able to do one, but I think we can squeeze in two okay. uh, if, we, uh, if we just... I'll rush the tempos. Keep on, yes. <laughs> Turn them into polkas. <laughs> so, but these are local favorite children's songs. In fact, you've recorded an album of these songs. The title is Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam. Correct. And uh, th these two Two songs. I have to ask in your arrangement for Sunbeam. Did you keep the Sunbeam? I the kids love to I sing. said, how am I going to depict that pianistically? <laughs> so I did it with glissandos and accented chords, which okay. you'll hear. Okay, well, that will be very <laughs> fun to hear. Also, there was a recent survey of the 100 most favorite LDS songs, including this children's song, A Child's Prayer, which is uh, one of the two here. So yes. let's, let's have you take your place. We're going to be able to hear these. Again, these are from an album of children's songs arranged and performed by Dr. Robin Hancock called Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam. And we'll be hearing A Child's Prayer and the title song.
two local favorites, A Child's Prayer and Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam, performed by Robin Hancock. I did not hear a polka, but I think I heard a waltz in that last one there. (laughs) On Highway 89, we've been listening to Piano's Greatest Hits, chosen and played today by our guest, Dr. Robin Hancock. He's a member of the American Piano Quartet and is on the piano faculty of Brigham Young University. A big thank you to Dr. Hancock, first for for choosing these and for coming here and performing for us live. Thank you. And I know our audience has been dying to give you a big hand, so let's go ahead and thank you very much. Thank you. But I do have one final question on our way out, which is, is there some piece of music that you still think, I still got to get to that? I got to learn that one. The Chopin Fantasy Impromptu okay. is the other favorite that I have still never gotten to learning. I've taught it a lot, but I haven't personally learned it. So okay, well, and the other one that the people are probably going to write in about is where was Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue? Okay, <laughs> well, just remember if you feel that way, write to Dr. Robin Hancock <laughs> and not to Highway 89. For all our listeners here in the studio and at home, you never have to miss an installment of the show. It's all archived online. You can listen on demand at byuradio.org/highway89. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BYUH89 for live show updates, information about upcoming shows, and special behind-the-scenes photos and video clips. Highway 89 is a production of BYU Broadcasting in Provo, Utah. Our recording engineer is Mark Waite, our student assistant is Abby Horlocker, and the show's producer is Jackie Tataishi. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Thanks for listening. 